3: Welcome back to the Leaving Eden Podcast. My name is Gavrielle Hakohen,
4: And I'm Sadie Carpenter.
3: And it is good to be with you today, Sadie. Do you want to tell the fine people what it is we're talking about today?
4: Sure. So, a couple weeks ago, when we did our episode with our wonderful guest, uh, Jen, from Fungi Fridays, I mentioned kind of offhandedly the power that a pastor's wife has in the church specifically to influence the lives of women in the church and that really got us thinking about that position within the ifb and what that means so we wanted to do a whole episode we're going to talk about the different expectations and responsibilities of a pastor's wife and uh, how she influences the church
3: Before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult. The cult in which she was raised, we talk about this cult, we talk about other cults, we talk about religion, we talk about fundamentalism, we talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole, and it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, there are a number of things that you can do in which to support us, ways in which you can support us. You can hit that follow button or that subscribe button, it'll make sure you get the New episode on Monday morning every week on Monday morning. You can join our Patreon at patreoncom slash podcast. and if you do that, you will get access to extended and uncensored versions of most of our episodes, as well as various other things. We have a bonus episode that came out about a month ago where we review a sex book, like like a fundamentalist sex and marriage advice book. Is written by and for and approved by and for fundamentalists. So that's really interesting and that's uh, really entertaining. You can join our Facebook group. The Facebook group is called uh, Eden Exodus. You go to facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus where you can discuss. You can tell personal stories. You can discuss the show with other fans of the show. And I've been using it to ask for recipes from people. I mean, you can really ask for anything you want in there as long as it's vaguely fundamentalism related. And I figured, you know, um, <laughs> I asked for barbecue sauce recipes because I know all you fundies have excellent barbecue sauce recipes. And you can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Sadie, is there anything else I need to say before I go and thank the patrons?
4: Uh, no, I think you got it.
3: Okay. Oh, one more thing. I did think of something. We have a QA episode coming up. The, the QA episode is coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, and if you want to ask us a question for us to answer on the show, uh, you can send that question to leaving at gmail.com.
4: And also don't don't forget, if you are gonna write in with a question to be answered on the show. Let us know what name we can call you, whether that's your first name or a nickname, or if you'd like to stay anonymous or like to use your full name. Also, let us know what your pronouns are so that we can refer to you correctly when we read your question.
3: All right. And so now I guess I just have to thank the patrons
4: let's
3: do it i love all of our patrons i love you guys so much we love you patrons oh yes we do we don't love anyone as much as you Our, uh we have two i gave it all to your patrons um your names are kathleen Moncrief and melissa mosley thank you guys so much yeah big
4: thank you you to the i gave it all to your patrons
3: yeah um if you guys haven't heard it yet a couple of weeks ago i posted like a, a bit of an outtake i'm working on the longer more sus more scandalous outtake reel there's just so much stuff i've got to like clips i've got to trim and put in there and we've just been so swamped lately but now that we're maybe a little bit further ahead i'll get to doing that and our faith promise missions patrons you guys are also amazing your names are alex todd alicia guild Ally allen Anisha Patel, Brittany Brooke Tully, Krissa, Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen, the musical, Eleanor Donahue, Emery Fairlosser, Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton hears a Shane. I'm just here to send Sadie true crime podcast suggestions, aka Meg, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jana K Terwee. Kristen Marie, Lauren Vanderwall, Linda Morgan, Lindsey Goss, Lorena Watson, MC Crunchwrap, hashtag The Boy Who Cried Sauce, Michaela Upright, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Rob the Methodist, Sarah Reese, Stephanie Johnson, Susie, Tara McNamara. Tiffany Enderby, Walnut, Son of Walnut, and as always, Wes the Cowboy. Thank you guys so much for uh, uh, being our patrons. We would not be able to make this show happen if it wasn't for our wonderful patrons.
4: Yeah, thank you so much to our I gave it all to your patrons and Faith Promise Missions patrons in particular, but also to everybody who supports us over on Patreon, regardless of the amount. I've seen a lot of new people come in over the last couple of weeks, and that's been really exciting. I hope you are enjoying your bonus content.
3: You guys are really fantastic. You guys really are the people who make it possible for us to make this show.
4: And we hope we bring added value to your podcast listening experience as well.
3: Sadie, do you want to hit us with that TW, and then we'll get into the episode?
4: Absolutely. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will naturally mention at least a few of these topics, but We try very hard to avoid any graphic detail about any of those topics or anything else that we know can be triggering, unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling. And if we are going to include that detail, we will give you a heads up before we go into detail on any of those topics. We always encourage our listeners to take the best care of themselves that they can and use the skip button if necessary. In this episode in particular, We are talking about the gendered expectations placed on pastor's wives, which naturally involves a lot of misogyny and sexism. There is a brief section uh, before the offering break where I'm going to talk about uh, infertility and the pressure to have children. I'm not going to go. It's a hypothetical example that I'm using there. Not a lot of detail. I do have it in my notes to make sure I give you a heads up before we get into that. I also want to give a disclaimer. (laughs) That not everything in this episode is directly pulled from my personal story, specifically my mother's experience as a pastor's wife. I will be talking about that, of course, a good part of it is. But not only did I grow up in a pastor's family, but I was tutored as a child and a teenager to prepare me for the possibility of becoming a pastor's wife one day, even though that wasn't something that I wanted to do. I went to teen conferences and the topic would come up. Like, some of you are going to marry pastors one day, and this is what you need to know about that. I also attended Ladies Spectacular at First Baptist Church of Hammond for a lot of my childhood and teen years, so not only did I sit in children and teen sessions there where we were being talked to about the possibility of becoming a pastor's wife, I was also hearing pastor's wives from around the country speak about their experiences in the evening services that were all ages. So I I am pulling from my own experience, but I'm also pulling from other people's experiences. I don't want people to assume that everything I say in this episode directly applies to my mother because that's not accurate.
3: All right. So do you want to get into the episode now? Let's get into it.
4: So having seen what the IFB ministry does to a family, I did not want to marry a pastor. (laughs) It's kind of anyone but a pastor. Uh, I... Of course, marriage was my only option growing up in the IFB church, but if I had a choice, I really wanted to marry an assistant pastor or a Christian school principal, anyone but a pastor. Then, of course, being IFB, I came to the conclusion that since my heart was so resistant to the idea of becoming a pastor's wife, that was probably exactly what God wanted me to do. Because when you feel guilty for not wanting to do something, you're taught to assume that that's the Holy Spirit convicting you of, well, you've got to do this thing. And you hear so many stories about that. You know, I did not want to be a pastor's wife, so God made me a pastor's wife. And it's, it's played as a joke, um, even though that's terrible. So I thought yeah. that I was being called to be a pastor's wife because I really, really hated the idea of doing it. And then I was uh, considered myself to be fighting the Holy Spirit or not surrendering to the Holy Spirit, which was actually great because then that would give me a testimony to share at testimony time if I ever did decide to surrender to the Holy Spirit and commit to being a pastor's wife. Except for the fact that I just really did not want to. So when I was a a teenager and a student at Hiles Anderson, Like I said in my disclaimer, there was a lot of focus given to preparing young women for their eventual roles in ministry. And by roles, I mean someone's wife, because that is the only role for a woman in ministry, other than perhaps being a Christian school teacher. So I was in on a lot of conversations about being a pastor's wife that were meant to be real and raw and talk about the real struggles or as close to real as the IFB is capable of being.
3: Yeah, and I remember you saying, I think in probably, I think it was episode nine, one of the things in particular that made you not want to be a pastor's wife was watching your mother do that and and how difficult that would have been and how and how difficult it was for her.
4: Yeah, and this episode is all about why I looked at this particular role in the IFB church and said, not for me. So the source that I'm using for this episode, other than my own stories and things that I heard, is Beverly Hile's book about being a pastor's wife. A good long excerpt of it is available on Google Books. The book is called Life as Viewed from the Goldfish Bowl. And this book is a really fascinating document because... Beverly Hiles' aim in writing this book seems to be trying to correct misconceptions that other pastor's wives have. So, in this book, she's naming things that she sees as problems with the high expectations put on pastor's wives and the high expectations that they put on themselves. And she's encouraging people to have what she sees as more realistic, more reasonable expectations of themselves— Which sounds kind of nice, but the reduced and more realistic expectations that she's pushing are still completely wild to me.
3: This is really interesting because the Hiles IFB is so heavily based around do things as I do them and you will have the same success as I have. And then here's a book written by Jack Hiles' wife that is, this is everything that we're doing wrong. And that's really interesting to me as a concept.
4: It it is. The other thing I really wanted to say about this book is that I snuck this one as a kid. I wasn't really supposed to be reading it, but it wasn't like off limits. It was just not meant for me.
3: It wasn't like a sex book or something. Yeah.
4: But- my my mom probably had the book. I can't remember where I got it from. But this book was such a lifesaver for me, like maybe as a preteen age kid, because I needed to see that someone else understood the pressures that I and my family experienced day to day. So this book really did do something for me as a kid. So Mrs. Hiles opens this book by quoting a poem from another book about being a pastor's wife. And I think I just want to share this poem with you. It's short and uh, it's really poignant. Daily works from morn till night. Perfect children act just right. House is always neat and clean. Company may soon be seen. Cheerfully at every meeting, smiling nicely with her greeting. Slim, trim, and always fit. Confident and quick with wit. Thrifty, smart, and pretty, too. Knows the Bible through and through. Cooks and entertains with zest. Never worried, never stressed. Talent, charm, and patience, too. Nothing that she cannot do never existing in real life she's the mythical preacher's wife
3: wow that's i mean that's a very eye-opening
4: that's a that's actually a great observation good job to whoever wrote that the uncredited author who was quoted in beverly hiles book
3: well it's a better poem than the one in kent hoven's dissertation (laughs) so uh whichever um ifb or, or christian or fundamentalist woman wrote that poem. Um, props to you for uh i mean i believe that the truest uh ex- that that art in its purest form is an expression of the human existence so you know this this is it, it feels very true to somebody's existence
4: yeah that was worth reading on the podcast i thought
3: yeah we, i mean we just did our our Pastors, pastor school episode a couple of weeks ago and you were talking about like all the things they were saying in the breakout sessions uh, uh to the ladies aside from the horribly sexually inappropriate things to say in front of children. This is like a hundred percent what the expectation was.
4: Yes. And Beverly Hiles is coming out here and saying, listen, we all know that these expectations are completely out of reach for human beings.
3: Yet This it was, this book was, was it published by Hiles publications?
4: Sort of the Lord publications was actually the really? publisher. Yeah. I don't have any idea why it wasn't done under Hiles publications. It was published in 1990. So. I suppose it's possible that she just didn't want a certain Hiles publication secretary being the one to ship her book out. Huh. I mean, that would be kind of insulting, right? Like, Yeah. You write a book about being a wife to your husband and what that means to you and your husband's alleged mistress is the one who is packaging it up and sending it out to people. That just feels like an insult. Now, I don't know what was in her mind, but Mm. I wouldn't be willing to do that
3: yeah were jack and beverly hiles all good in 1990 considering that their yeah their dirty laundry had just been aired out on like national tv
4: yeah no this was not in their all good days um so that scandal had just gone down for jack hiles in uh spring of 1989 Also, this was right in the middle of some of Dave Hiles' worst days when this book was published. And, of course, none of that is mentioned, at least in the excerpt that I was able to read. Do you remember when we talked about Jack Hiles' response to the biblical evangelist article and the sermon that he preached?
3: with the untruth.
4: Yeah, with the untruth. (laughs) So, (laughs) I've had a little cold and every time I cough, I think I sound like Jack Hiles.
3: <laughs> Take that <laughs> baby out.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I'm triggering people. <laughs> you were asking me if Jack and Beverly Hiles were were on good terms. Um so when he did that response to the Biblical Evangelist article, he said something like, and I'm paraphrasing, if you had just said all those terrible things about me, I would have never fought back, I would have turned the other cheek but now you've attacked my wife's integrity and I won't have that. So I am up here now to defend my wife.
3: Yes, of course. Jack Hiles, allegedly, um, (laughs) according to Vic Nischik is the guy who offered his wife as like
4: consolation prize uh, as, as
3: consolation prize to Victor Nischik. He said, you can have sex with my wife. if
4: If I can keep on going on with your wife
3: and all the wives of all these other people as well. <laughs> yeah.
4: And every time I hear this, the the song The Reynolds pamphlet from Hamilton starts going through my head very loudly. So <laughs> I have always <laughs> since reading about this, I've always suspected that perhaps that statement that that Jack Hiles made well if it was if you had just attacked me, I wouldn't have said anything, but I'm up here to defend my wife's integrity. I have always thought maybe that was the the last-ditch effort to very publicly show real loyalty to Beverly, his wife. Uh, There is good reason to think that he was not a good husband to her during this time period and that there was potentially some mental or emotional abuse going on in that marriage. But I do think there was some real love between them as well two things can be true at once and especially when you're thinking about a man who was raised in the 30s and 40s i think the concept of you can really love your wife and also be somewhat abusive to her was a cultural norm at the time hmm so i you know it 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 doesn't because someone is abusive does not mean that they do not love their partner it means they do not love them well it means they do not love them completely it means they do not love them as much as they think they do but do you see what i'm saying here
3: yeah i do see what you're saying it's it's people can have mm. feelings
4: of love toward a person and still be abusive and like that's on them to figure their anyway I think that there was some amount of real love between Jack and Beverly, as evidenced by their um, reconciliation in later years. And he truly didn't want to lose his marriage. And I think that was mostly because if he lost his marriage, he would lose his ministry, and that was very important to him. But there could have potentially been a factor of, like, oh, also, I don't want to lose my marriage.
3: I'm remembering the time back in um in first family of fundamentalism series when he uh Beverly literally left him and went to go with their daughter in was it Tennessee or Kentucky or somewhere
4: what whatever was going on in there and and whatever the mechanisms were that were making their marriage not end he made a very public statement of loyalty and maybe that meant a lot to her especially after everything he had put her through. Maybe it did mean something to her that he would stand up in front of the entire congregation with the eyes of the entire IFB movement on him and make a public statement of loyalty to his wife. Also, you may or may not remember this detail. This is a tiny, tiny detail from that same First Family of Fundamentalism episode, but a secondary factor to the whole biblical evangelist debacle was that Jack Hiles accused Robert Sumner, who wrote the article accusing Hiles of the affair, of being upset that Sumner wasn't chosen as the new editor of the Sword of the Lord newspaper. So Sumner had been in consideration for editor. Hiles had recommended somebody else. He had used his power to get one of his friends on as the editor instead. And when Sumner wrote the article accusing Hiles of the affair, Jack Hiles said, well, you're lying and you're lying because you're just mad at me because I supported someone else for editor of sort of the Lord. So possibly having this book published through sort of the Lord was a bid to publicly and privately reaffirm the standing relationship of and loyalty between the Hiles family and sort of the Lord publications.
3: That makes sense. And of course, Jack Hiles wouldn't publish one of his own books through Sword of the Lord because he would be giving up too much money.
4: That's a good point. So Beverly, yet again, if my my wild theory is correct, Beverly was a pawn in his game again. I have zero hard evidence for any of this, but that's just what I see when I look at this particular little tidbit of Fundy drama. Let's leave the Fundy drama corner behind and get into what these expectations for a pastor's wife in the IFB are. Beverly Hiles said in the book we were referencing that a pastor's wife's only job is to, quote, be his wife. But it turns out that being his wife has a lot of other jobs wrapped up into that. I want to start by talking about the expectations at home.
3: Okay, let's get into that. You've spoken at length in the past about the pressure that you were under as a, a pastor's kid and how much you were pressured to stay in line and, and never set a toe out of line because it would it, it would negatively affect your, your family. Mm-hmm. How much of the keeping kids in line is going to come from your mom versus your dad?
4: That's a great question. And the answer to that question is biblical patriarchy. So, oh, remember no. the dumb umbrella illustration that's dumb because one umbrella protects you from the rain just fine and you don't need three increasingly smaller umbrellas?
3: Yes. I've also seen a memified version where the top umbrella above, like all the other umbrellas, is Baja Blast because Taco <laughs> Bell is always there when you need it. <laughs>
0: So,
4: what the IFB likes to do is they like to take Scripture not only literally, but also prescriptively. And there's a certain passage that they do take very prescriptively when talking about pastors. The passage is 1 Timothy chapter 3. It talks about the qualifications for pastors and the qualifications for deacons. Now, if you read this chapter just slightly more abstractly it paints a very nice picture of the kind of upstanding people that you would want to have leading your church, regardless of what kind of church you attend or what religion you belong to. So a lot of that, and for our secular friends, this is is the kind of people that you would want to run for president in your political party. This is the kind of people that you would want to lead whatever community that you're in.
3: So what's it say?
4: Uh, A lot of the passage has things to do has to do with things like not being a habitual drunk, not being a gossip, not being greedy for money, and having a solid family life. Of course, the IFB has to take this extremely literally. So one of the points I'm reading from verse 4 in King James Version, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And because of that verse in the IFB, if a pastor's kid is out of line, then the pastor is no longer qualified to be a pastor and can hypothetically be fired.
3: Well, how come when David Hiles started being a child molester, that didn't open Jack Hiles up to the possibility of being fired?
4: Uh, what about when Steven Anderson's boys a couple summers ago had a group chat oh. with other teens in the church with like horrible, horrible things in it?
3: Right. I God, I forgot about that. I swear. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Forgot about that one.
4: So it w- that was a huge scandal, but it was handled internally by Steven Anderson, and he didn't face church disciplinary consequences. People did leave his church, but he did not, he was not in in jeopardy of being fired by the church.
3: Right, because it's the NIFB and it's Stephen Anderson and he is the church.
4: Because he is the NIFB, right? So you asked, why would your run-of-the-mill IFB pastor, small, moderate church, be terrified of this clause in 1 Timothy? But it's toothless and it doesn't hurt real cult leaders like jack hiles or steven anderson why is that the answer is that this is another one of those double standards that hurts the little guy but not the guy at the top so many ifb rules and standards really only hurt the people who buy in the most so big name pastors who send their kids to hiles anderson and the kid gets caught sneaking off to a motel with their boyfriend or girlfriend when they're supposed to be out soul winning they don't worry about this stuff because their dads have the power to cover it up. And if it did get out, the pastor has brought so much financial and numerical success to his church that the church won't fire him because the church believes that they need him. So to answer your original question, the enforcement of keeping kids in line actually falls more to the father, because who is the pastor, because it's his job and reputation on the line. And because of that umbrella graphic, he is the highest authority over his home. However, if you've got a toddler who's misbehaving, fathers in the IFB don't really take care of their toddlers. So while it is the father's reputation on the line, it's the, it's the wife, it's the mother who's got to deal with the toddler in question. And if she's impatient, or if she's not strict enough, or if she doesn't do whatever she needs to do to get the kid to chill, if she gives in to their whining for an applesauce snack instead of disciplining them, whatever it is that she did, she's the one who looks like she's doing a bad job. Because in that umbrella graphic, she is the direct authority over the children. Or if you've got maybe a more reasonable scenario, if you've got an eight-year-old who's misbehaving, sure, that looks bad on the dad. It just looks worse on the mom because people would say things like, well, maybe if she had disciplined that that kid correctly when they were a toddler, this wouldn't be happening now.
3: Yeah, and that reminds me of when you were talking about... um The idea that we are born speaking lies and Jack Hiles would say in his parenting books that when a baby is crying, it is lying to you because it is demanding your attention.
4: (sighs) There's always a way to blame a woman for something that's a man's responsibility is what I'm saying. So I want to give my quick content warning for infertility, birth control, etc. here. Again, it's, it's a fully hypothetical scenario. Of course, I think it goes without saying that IFB pastors' wives are expected to have children. There's really no such thing as being purposely child-free in the IFB. If a couple physically can't have kids for whatever reason, uh, it is allowed for them to choose not to pursue any kind of fertility treatments. A lot of segments of the IFB allow birth control for the purpose of spacing out kids so they're not too close together. Um, Some segments even suggest that couples use birth control for one year after getting married so that they can get to know each other before adding kids. But just choosing to not have kids at all is a completely foreign concept, especially for a pastor's wife. This, This hurts everyone, but I think it really hurts people who are infertile or unable to have children. The IFB is already a really tough environment for people in that position, and the reason that Beverly Hiles titled her book, Life as Viewed from the Goldfish Bowl, is referencing how exposed a pastor's wife can feel in an IFB church, and how everybody can want to be in her business all the time. There is definitely a subtle sense of the church's corporate ownership over the pastor's wife's body and time and labor. And we're going to go into a lot of facets of that in this episode, but speaking of fertility and childbearing, let's say that Becky is a young pastor's wife. She had just graduated from Hiles Anderson. Her husband graduated. He took his first church position as a pastor in a small church. They got married, and they did choose to wait one year to start trying to have kids. But they start trying. Time goes by. She's not getting pregnant. Eventually, they go to the doctor. The doctor says it's unlikely that they'll ever be able to conceive without medical help. The thing is, Becky will get asked about children weekly by church members. When are you going to have a baby? When are you going to have a baby? And they're not going to shut up and stop asking unless she discloses precisely what medical issues that she's having. Or if the couple happens to have male factor infertility, she's going to have to lie and say something else because she obviously can't shame her husband like that. Not that there's anything shameful about that in real life, but that's how the hyper-masculine IFB world would see it.
3: It's extreme transparency with everything except for the church's financials.
4: Right. (laughs) So I want to point out, this is a problem that is certainly not unique to IFB women. But practically every person with a uterus, especially those of us who choose to have babies, has had someone be really pushy and ask inappropriate questions and try to get all up in their uterus's business at some point in their lives. The only thing that makes this different is that instead of it being a family member or a friend who is putting themselves in that position of, I deserve to know exactly what is going on with your internal organs, it's a church corporately exerting almost ownership, asserting a right to know about what is going on in someone's body. And it's an additional level. To me, it's an additional level of creepy when it is coming from a church body and not just an individual person with poor boundaries.
3: Yeah. And of course, all these church members, I'm sure that individually they mean well, but I guess since this is the IFB, there's just zero privacy anyway. And it's not like you could say, this just isn't what God has planned for us right now, and they drop it. It's
4: Right. If you were mm. an, uh, a church member who wasn't on staff, you might get away with saying something like that, depending on the church culture. But the what I'm wanting to point out is that the pastor's wife is so often treated like some sort of community property.
3: And, of course, you wouldn't be able to do IVF because that's very expensive. And also, uh, technically, it could constitute abortion depending on who you ask.
4: Right. So, some segments of the IFB will allow IVF. Most segments will not. And almost no one could afford it anyway. It's kind of how that shakes out. And, of course, in the IBLP, it's completely off the table.
3: If you're a pastor and you don't have kids for too long and you don't exp- it, like explain why you haven't had kids is it possible for you to lose your job because of that are they going to like get up and say we don't think that you're fully uh, uh uh with god's plan for your family or something
4: so let me see how i can explain this the most fairly in a lot of churches, it would be a source of gossip. It would be a source of kind of giving the side eye at the pastor and his wife. In many of those same churches, they would fully blame the wife. Wh- whether or not they knew anything about what was going be- going on behind the scenes, They, it's very likely that they would start rumors about her, like, oh, she's selfish and lazy and doesn't want kids, or... Uh, well, I heard this. Well, I heard, I heard, or I heard she damaged her body with birth control, and now she can't have children. All of this is is and myths, and not true. In some churches, you might get a deacons' meeting where deacons confront the pastor about why aren't you having children and expect an explanation. And in more extreme churches yeah, you might get a church discipline meeting called where the entire church confronts the pastor and his wife about why they are not having children. There's a, there's so a whole spectrum and range, and I don't want to I- imply that all of the IFB churches fall into the worst part of that range. What I want to point out instead is that the most compassionate part of that range is still bad.
3: If it gets to the point where th- where people would actually be saying something about it, would there be... Also, w- would there be the possibility of of saying, okay, well, we've decided to adopt children? Yeah, or? so
4: that would be a possibility. There's, It could also shake out, so let's say that this couple's not able to have children, but they've decided not to disclose that to the church, and we're in a church on the nicer side of that range, maybe, where it's just gossip and rumors being spread, but no confrontation has been held it's also really possible for the church to come together and decide to fire the pastor for some unrelated reason.
3: But like say you're uh it's been like 4 years and you don't have kids yet and people are starting to talk and then you say oh we've decided to adopt children would that basically be like confirming it but not like publicly confirming okay well we physically like we yeah. medically can't okay that makes sense.
4: So not yeah. only Is a pastor's wife obligated to do everything that she can to produce children? She's also obligated to either homeschool these children or send them to Christian school. If the church doesn't have a Christian school and a regular church member chooses to send their kids to public school to be a, quote, you know, witness for Christ in this wicked world, that can be acceptable in some parts of the IFB. But it's practically unheard of for pastor's kids.
3: Do you think that this expectation incentivizes IFB pastors to start a Christian school that's associated with their church?
4: No, because Mm. women who are raised and taught to be pastor's wives are just taught that homeschooling is an expectation that they might have to fulfill. They're not allowed to complain. They're supposed to be proficient and prepared to do this, period. And the husband expects the wife to be able to do this because he's been told all of his life about how this isn't that hard and your wife is made for this and she's trained for this and just like let her handle it, all that. So he's been told she can handle it. She's been told to never complain. How would he know if she's already getting overloaded and we haven't even gotten to church responsibilities yet? And even if he, so let's say he notices that she seems overwhelmed and he goes to his wife to ask her about it, she might fudge the truth a little bit and tell him that she's fine because she's not supposed to complain. Or, let's say, the wife is recognizing that she's not keeping up with all of this, and she goes to her husband to see if there's another solution. Well, he might decide to be a jerk that day and tell her, well, you're made for it, so suck it up and deal with it. So if this was a problem in a couple both people would have to be on board to fixing it for anything to happen the actual incentive and this is how they keep people in and this is why they push marriage because once you're married it's so much harder to leave that and this is why the actual incentive to starting a christian school is to bring in tuition money especially in education voucher states and to look good in front of other pastors
3: see i've always thought that it was odd that IFB schools could take school vouchers, which is essentially like a government handout. It's the government subsidizing your lifestyle, but they're not allowed to take a uh, uh, snap or or cash assistance.
4: No, because the way that they present the idea of school vouchers is that it's a refund of the portion of your taxes that you pay toward public schools. So the way they see it is you're getting refunded that amount of your taxes. And fundies are all about tax refunds, render on to Caesar or not, because they have a bunch of kids and not much money, so they love their tax returns. See,
3: that's uh, but like I I pay for public schools and I don't even have kids. I don't know, man, it's just I I feel like it's uh we shouldn't be subsidizing this uh, uh, uh this this lifestyle. We it, it should not be on the general public to subsidize this um lifestyle that i really just don't agree with and i don't think that is 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 right and i don't think that it's right that we should be subsidizing that
4: i get what you're saying (laughs) but that's how it's pitched (laughs) to the fundies in order to be a loophole to their anti-government beliefs so not only not only does a pastor's wife have to have children and raise them in a very particular way it's also assumed that her husband is so busy and works so much that she'll have to do 100% of the housework. And that's, of course, pretty typical in an IFB marriage anyway. But the thing is, she's got to do all of that work better than the average IFB wife does it. A pastor is supposed to always have a perfectly clean house because you never know when someone is going to need emergency child care or have a family emergency. <clears throat> Need to do counseling at their house in their living room. Um, I remember, I'm pretty sure there was a wedding in our living room at some point. can't remember whose it was, though, because the other church wedding that I'm thinking of was in someone else's living room. Anyway, uh, your house is almost an extension of the church building, especially in the IFB when providing the pastor housing is not unusual. So your house needs to be presentable at all times. Providing housing such as a parsonage, it's not universal in the IFB, but it's also not uncommon.
3: And it's not exclusive to the IFB either.
4: Right. Of course not. So in some denominations, it's practically universal.
3: I mean, the Catholics do it pretty consistently.
4: Right. Um, Like I know the monsignor at the cathedral down the road from me lives. There's a little apartment up in the cathedral building, and that's where he gets to live. So it's not universal like that in the IFB, but in smaller IFB churches, it's it's pretty common, um, especially because like someone, an older person in the church might will their house to the church and then that becomes the personage, something like that. Anyway, not only does your house need to be perfectly presentable at all times, your husband has to be physically cared for. If it's a disaster when a regular IFB man comes home and dinner isn't ready, how big of a disaster is it if the pastor comes home and dinner isn't ready? I can just hear it echoing in my ears now. <laughs> How is your husband supposed to feed the flock if you can't feed him dinner? Uh, this is uh, references something that Cindy Scott once said, and I cannot remember when she said it. Uh, Cindy Collins, no. I'm trying to use her correct name because I never know what to call her. I want you to know who I'm talking about, but that's not her last name anymore good for her a
3: cindy jack hiles daughter
4: yeah you could i could say cindy hiles collins possibly she is. i think we can use her real name yeah probably fine uh but anyway that person who i respect and hope has a good life um said that if her husband her former husband convicted felon jack scott uh whom she left which was incredibly brave of her i uh, came home it. I just I like to praise her strength and bravery. I know there are things that I wouldn't agree with her on. There are topics that that we would not vibe on, but that doesn't mitigate the the strength and bravery she showed in staying in standing up for herself, and hopefully hundreds of other women who see that and feel that they can now stand up for themselves as well.
3: I don't give a f- who you are. Um, leaving an abusive partner is always a good thing.
4: Yeah. And being such a public figure, she, I'm sure she gave a lot of other people confidence to do so. And that means a lot. Anyway, she once said that if her husband was coming home and she didn't have dinner ready yet, just throw some, chop an onion real quick and throw an onion and some butter in a pot on the stove so that it smells like you're working on dinner. Mm. Ugh, so much to unpack there. Someone in a, a Facebook group I'm in said that a big name p- IFB pastor's wife once said in a lesson that she put her husband's toothpaste on his toothbrush for him every morning to save him time.
3: Wow.
4: So that's maybe a little out of the ordinary, but when I say you have to physically care for your husband, I really do mean the IFB pastor's wives are expected to care for his every need.
3: I mean, does she have to wipe his butt when he goes to the bathroom? <laughs> not that I know of. I mean, <laughs> and I'm not talking about like a situation where you're like a caretaker. Right. Like because that's,
4: of course, totally different. Yeah. No, this isn't, this isn't, I, I, uh, this is an enabled person who has every capacity to do that for themselves. For more typical couples, I think this would be things like laundry, taking in his dry cleaning, and doing all of his personal shopping, like toothpaste, deodorant, that kind of thing. Of course, in Heil's brand, IFB, it wouldn't be okay for a pastor to be seen at the store buying deodorant, for example. How come? Because he is the man of God. So there's this whole culture of untouchability around IFB pastors. You're not supposed to hear about or see them doing anything that's too human. Uh, Let me see Hmm. if I can pull an example. Okay, so if an IFB pastor's wife said to another lady in the church that her husband ate too much chili last night and he had really bad farts, that would be the highest level of disrespect. Like, I literally really? cannot imagine, like, literally possible church split material, possible church discipline for the wife material.
3: Over that?
4: Yeah. Of course, it's wow. not every church. There are churches that are more casual, but the the Hiles brand IFB absolutely recommends that kind of, I don't even know what word to use about it.
3: Well, Jack mean, Hiles I- would
4: say, like, there needs to be a separation between the pastor and the church members.
3: Yeah, but it's just keeping
4: yourself apart from the common people.
3: I mean, but it's it's that's to the level of like idolatry though. That's crazy. Yes. I mean it's IFP pastors have to live by, you know, girls don't poop standards. This is ludicrous. That's insane. That's wow. Yes, and
4: it is. It's it is making the pastor something other than human, which is which seems to me like making him a god which seems to me like that's what idolatry is
3: but your dad would like lampoon himself in front of like the the congregation on a regular basis like you know yeah. when you're telling me about like the valentine's day skits and stuff and <laughs> that kind oh, of yes. thing he would i mean he uh, would go he, out of his-
4: i hope my mother doesn't hear this episode because she'd be mad at me for sharing this story but Like when he and my mom used to dress up as Sonny and Cher and sing, I got you, babe, for the Valentine banquets like that.
3: (laughs) That's funny. See, that's It is
4: is really funny because he was significantly taller than my mother. So he would slouch and she'd wear really high heels. It was very cute. So it's not, I mean, Jack Hiles allowed himself to be made fun of in skits. If I'm remembering correctly, he told, because my dad was on the skit team at Hiles Anderson for years and years. And he would let them make fun of his voice, his mannerisms, all of that. But they were told never, ever make fun of his hair because he was insecure about it.
3: Oh, and he's very bald. He has a strong comb over.
4: Just another way that Uh, you're better than Jack Isles.
3: What in that I'm uh I-, I shaved my head.
4: Yeah, and you're rocking it.
3: I think that maybe if Jack Hiles had accepted that he was going bald and then like shaved his head, then maybe he wouldn't have been so insecure that he had to feel like he had to abuse other people.
4: Yeah. Maybe that. So <laughs> Jack Hiles allowed people to make fun of him, but there's it's it's the humanity of a person that is not supposed to be like like bodily functions are very very taboo um
3: or baldness
4: yeah uh, i'm trying to i'm trying to describe this and it's such a weird social thing that it's really hard to describe so there's this unwritten code of conduct like a pastor can't be seen in pajamas in public um can't be seen buying personal products can't be seen doing any kind of domestic labor it is it references something that jack's Jack Hiles said in a book about there should be a separation between a pastor and his people, and there should even be a separation between a husband and a wife, um, which I think just speaks to his deep psychological issues. But he didn't really believe in in being emotionally intimate with anyone, and he didn't believe in, like, I don't know how to describe it. He wanted to appear non-human,
3: Well, if you're not emotionally intimate with anybody, then it's easier for you to dehumanize those people.
4: Yeah, that might just be it.
3: Because it's dehumanizing on both ends. Because if you're at one end and you're this kind of abusive pastor, then you can view other people as beneath you and you can treat them poorly. But then if you're one of the little people and you see this pastor as being on this pedestal, then that's dehumanizing in a different way in that the expectations that you have of this person are can, can be abusive in their own way in that they they're so extreme
4: yeah it it's just it's designed to make people see the pastor as kind of a demigod figure it's a big deal if you see an IFB pastor changing a kid's diaper or talking about it like oh that guy does domestic labor for his own children he might be a little bit liberal. This is also why Steven Anderson's like peeing against the wall sermon was so controversial because that kind of crudeness or talking about bodily functions at all is traditionally off limits for IFB pastors. Really? Yeah.
3: I didn't even I didn't even get that thing. I just thought it was w- weird for that to be in a a a, a sermon to begin with.
4: Yeah, Mm. so there's always, like, more and more layers to this entire societal thing. Back to, like, the husband care stuff, though. Ironing my dad's shirts was the really big job in my house because my dad wore a full suit, usually seven days a week. So that's a lot of shirts to iron. It's a lot of pants to press. My mom used to, like, stand for hours and just do it all at once for, like, weeks ahead. And then I learned to do the ironing also ironing clothing for another member of your household is not a weird or unusual or bad thing to do. Actually, I actually ironed my husband's shirt the other day because he was going in for a big work meeting and I don't mind ironing and he doesn't like ironing and I like him to feel cared for and I wanted him to go into his big meeting like remembering that he's got somebody who loves and supports him at home. The only thing that makes this weird and bad is is the teaching that a grown adult man can't be expected to take care of his own basic needs and must be catered to and served 100% of the time because he's a pastor. So, you know about weaponized incompetence, right?
3: Oh, yeah. That's that's like what we were talking about with Jen, which is why people tend to deconstruct as couples and why they want you to get married before you can deconstruct, because you don't want your partner to leave you and then you're not going to be able to do anything.
4: Right. So... Uh, Weaponized incompetence is uh, more typically something that a man does to a woman partner, but it can be anybody. Uh, So typically, um, a man will be asked to do a chore around the house and he will say that he is not able to do it or does not know how to do it. And then if the female partner wants him to do that chore, she's now got to expend more time Either teaching him how to do that chore or cleaning up after him when he does the chore poorly. And when he does a crappy job with anything she asks him to do, eventually she will stop asking him to do things and just do it because it's quicker. If she just does it it herself, that's weaponized incompetence. This is like culturally enforced weaponized incompetence. Man. It's it's, (sighs) like... I do want to snark on a grown man who can't do basic life functions. But in the spirit of fairness, I also want to point out that he's been conditioned to be this way. This is part of the reason that it's very uncommon for an IFB pastor not to have a wife and why they often remarry very quickly if their wife should die. Because on a practical level, it would be almost impossible for one person to keep up with the time commitment of being an IFB pastor without having an entire extra person available to do a mountain of unpaid labor. So it's, these men are engaging in behavior, but there is a lot more to it than that. So we've talked about some of the expectations for an IFB pastor's wife at home. I'd like to also talk about the expectations for her at church. Something you referenced at the top of the show is that the pastor's wife is considered to be the leader of any lady's function in the church and of all the individual women in the church as well. Oof. I, I want to talk about all the different forms that that takes, because, of course, this doesn't look like what it looks like when a man is the leader of something, because that would be giving women too much power. So, it it doesn't come in, like, one consolidated block of power. It comes more in, like, five little blocks of power. So, the big thing that comes to mind when I talk about this is the mother-daughter banquet or the ladies' conference, if the church has either or both of those. The pastor's wife would be expected to be the lead person on planning those events. She would be... The, the person who has the final say on the theme and the decorations and the food and all of that. She would also be the keynote speaker at those events unless there's a really serious reason that she can't, like serious health issues. It's very much expected for her to be the keynote speaker. It doesn't matter if she is somebody who has stage fright. Or if she doesn't want to stand up and teach a devotion from the Bible for all the women in her church and women from other churches, it's just something that she's expected to do. I have heard a lot of pastors' wives talk about this in particular.
3: That's, like, a lot of pressure, though, to put on somebody.
4: Yeah, just, like, you have to be a proficient public speaker because of who you married, period. And that's
3: not for everybody at all.
4: And I am a person who does not mind public speaking. But I can really imagine and empathize because I know that there are lots of people who don't enjoy it at all. And I know there are lots of people who have a very real fear of public speaking, absolutely hate it, cannot stand it.
3: But they're all just expected to do it if they marry a guy who's mm-hmm. a pastor.
4: Mm-hmm. And it's, well, if God calls you to be a pastor's wife, then God will give you the ability to speak in public And if you are a pastor's wife and you're not able to do public speaking, or you feel afraid doing public speaking, you're just not trusting God enough.
3: Man, I
4: just like it all. It just it always goes mm. in the same circle, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, like because you know, and I like if the church has a women's missionary society (WMS) or ladies' soul-winning group, the default person to lead that group would be the pastor's wife. Um, in Beverly Hiles' book, she mentions WMS and how she was just expected to be the president for a term every so often. When her kids were smaller, she says that Jack Hiles actually told her it was okay to turn it down so she could use the excuse, my husband won't let me. And that was, like, the only way mm-hmm. for her to get out of that expectation. Um, props to her, she does understand, like, how to work within this system because she advises pastor's wives to get their husbands to tell them that they can't do certain things that they don't want to do.
3: Wait. So is this like reverse weaponized incompetence? It's like the,
4: you know what I'm saying? No, it's, it's pulling an uno reverse on the patriarchy is what it is because like you as a pastor's wife were expected to do whatever thing, but you just say, no, my husband won't let me do that thing. And now you're just being a good obedient wife, but you're actually just doing what you want.
3: That's interesting. Cause like the obey your husband command comes before all of the other commands. Yes. And even if your b- husband expects you to do something that is not what, but like, what if it was, what if there's like a command from Jack Hiles that says, husbands, you need to let your wives do this thing. Does that trump the.
4: Yes. So like when. Hmm. Uh, Vic Nischik didn't want his wife to work for the church anymore on account of the shenanigans with her boss, Jack Kyles. Uh, Jack Kyles said, no, you need to let her do God's will for herself or something like that.
3: If it's in the case of an IFB pastor telling
4: so the wife
3: the wife of a congregant, the IFB pastor can tell the wife of a congregant what to do ab- ahead of her husband?
4: Technically it's not supposed to work that way, but it also definitely works that way.
3: If it's Jack Hiles.
4: Especially if it's then... Jack Hiles. So <clears throat> you've seen we've all seen like the the IBLP umbrella graphic. In the IFB version, there's an additional umbrella for the pastor between the husband and God. Okay. Because the IBLP is not nearly as focused on the local church. A lot of them do home churches. Um, et cetera, et cetera. in the IFB specific version that's so much more focused on the local church as a center of authority in a person's life, the past so the wife is in charge of the children, the husband is in charge of the wife, but the pastor is in charge of the husband. Hmm. So yeah, so that's kind of how that that power structure works. Uh, another thing that would typically be a pastor's wife's job would be to work in the church nursery. She would be responsible for recruiting nursery worker volunteers, training them, making a schedule for who is working when, and also filling in any scheduling gaps. Um, usually by just doing it herself, or making her oldest kid do it. In a lot of cases, her oldest daughter. So um, that's one thing my my little IFB church got right because they didn't let they didn't let teenagers work in the church nursery. I don't believe.
3: Interesting. Huh.
4: Yeah, they let me they let me play piano and interpret for sign language and run a junior church, but for they wouldn't let me work in with the baby babies in the nursery.
3: Interesting considering mm-hmm. that they would just like give you a baby and say, "Hey, th- you're raising this baby." <laughs> You'd think that letting the teenagers work in the nursery would be just like really in line with their parentification.
4: Yeah, I think it was a liability agenda. thing. Because because my church oh. actually, like, cared about a lot of things that a lot of IFB churches just totally blow off. But I think they had, like, actual proper legal forms that you as a parent would sign when you put your kid in the nursery, like a waiver and a permission slip and that kind of thing. And, like, actually checked out the kids, like, if the kid had any food allergies, uh, a lot of the IFB doesn't believe in food allergies.
3: Wait, they, how do you not believe in food allergies?
4: Well, it's just liberal, it just, you know.
3: Wait, do they just can give kids peanuts, and if they die, they die? Kind of yeah, just what? like
4: Oh, you know, food allergies. It's all just it's all just liberal snowflake nonsense. And back in my day, if pineapple made your mouth itchy, you just suffered through it or didn't eat pineapple.
3: Yeah, that's the point. Is that you don't eat the thing? Like, <laughs> man.
4: Yeah, it, it, uh, we'll get into. We, I'm going to do an episode about that at some point. Those are some of the church responsibilities that we would, that we would expect to see from an IFP pastor's wife. So when we talk about Jill Rodriguez wanting to be a big name pastor's wife, but she married the wrong guy and he can't pull off being a big name pastor because he doesn't have the charisma. This is what I'm talking about, so think about Jill. There are so many despicable things about her, but her personality, her good attributes, she can pull an event together. She can pull a ladies' talk or a devotional together that would exceed IFB standards for a fantastic ladies' devotional.
3: She can also pull together a funeral for her sister's legs.
4: Yes, (laughs) but… (laughs) <laughs> but that kind of, like, creativity and attention-seeking behavior and just kind of the the gutsiness of pulling that all together would be fantastic attributes of a big-name pastor's wife. She is willing to speak in public. She's willing to sing in public. She can staff a church nursery all on her own with her oldest couple kids. So she's got all of these skills that would be ideal for a big-name pastor's wife, but she doesn't have the church and that's why she is the way she is or part of why she is the way she is in my opinion so along with the things i already mentioned a pastor's wife would also plan a lot of the church functions so like potlucks funeral dinners often weddings in some really large churches there might be a wedding coordinator title And the pastor's wife might hold that title, or someone else might hold that title, but the pastor's wife would be the umbrella of authority over weddings. If there's a church wedding and the bride's dress has sleeves that are too revealing, it's the pastor's wife is one of the people who is going to look bad because of that. Really? Yeah. So even if the church has a wedding coordinator, like some larger churches will, there will be either just a a lady in the church who volunteers for it or it might be the music director or the music director's wife who's a, who's technically the wedding coordinator but if somebody goes on stage and is not modest it's the the pastor's wife is one of the people who is going to look as if they are incompetent at their jobs
3: well what if it's just somebody attending the wedding like say you're in That doesn't really matter. Oh, that's... Okay, cool. Yeah.
4: So so if your cousins are super IFB and you attend their wedding at an IFB church and you wear a dress that is just outrageously out of their modesty standards...
3: And then it shows your knees.
4: Yeah, it shows your <laughs> knees and your collarbone. Holy cow.
3: Boy, they...
4: No, nobody gets in trouble for that. The the church members just all judge you. And if you don't care, good for you. But it's it's the pastor's wife who is going to lose face she's going to lose a little bit of the respect that she has gained if uh a bride or bridesmaid goes on goes for a wedding and is immodest um and it's probably also the pastor's wife who is going to be backstage right before the wedding pulling off some kind of miracle modesty fix like that's gonna be that's (laughs) uh Mm. a responsibility of the pastor's wife and and I guess that's another thing. Um, We talk about mental load so much with parenting and how even in an egalitarian household, there's often one parent who carries a greater mental load. Somebody who knows all of their friends' birthdays and when the parties are and what time you're supposed to show up for them and what kind of thing you're supposed to dress a kid in to go to the birthday party and when their next doctor's appointment is and what the milestones are. And what they've had for lunch yesterday. (laughs) There are all of these things that that one parent generally is holding on to in their head, and splitting the physical labor of a household is a lot easier than splitting the mental load. I think a pastor's wife also carries a mental load for the church. She shows up to a church wedding with a whole kit full of little modesty pieces to put under the neckline of a dress and safety pins and straight pins and white thread and super glue in case somebody's high heel falls off and all of these things, you know, you could <sighs> things that a normal person would not have to think of when you're going to someone else's wedding. And that's, that's uh, another type of, of mental load that I think an IFB pastor's wife often has to carry.
3: That's crazy. Yeah. That man. Just,
4: you must be prepared for the needs of not only yourself and your own children, but also your grown husband, because he can't be expected to take care of his own needs because he's a pastor, and also the needs of your entire congregation at any time, all of the time. And you also have to look perfect doing it, and your kids have to be perfectly behaved. It's just stacking up and stacking up, and I have so much Mm. more.
3: That's so much, though. That's, like, man. Yeah, and that, we're,
4: like, halfway through.
3: I mean, yeah, but, like, and, and you're, like, a regular parent. You're yeah. not even, like, pastor's wife, fundy parent, and you're just, like, you know? Yeah. How, like, man.
4: There's just so much Chuck stuff that has to be in my brain all the time.
3: And that's, like, this would be on top of that if you were, yeah. like, a pastor's wife. Except that now you're, like, 30, so you would have four kids by now instead Right. Of- <laughs> RIP.
4: So, I have heard in some churches that all wedding dresses for the entire church have to go through the pastor's wife for approval. So, you've got to bring your wedding dress to church like on a Wednesday night and then try it on, and the pastor's wife will tell you what is okay and what doesn't meet approval. Uh, I have also, mm. it's not every church. I don't know if I'd be informed enough to make a guess on what percentage, but 50% feels right. Um, Also, the same kind of dress check thing for all women who are in singing groups for the church or going to sing on stage, that they would have to go through the pastor's wife for approval before going to sing uh, during a church service. It's also um, not unusual, but not every church does something like that as well. So the pastor's wife is the enforcement arm for what is and isn't considered modest, and her personal style and her personal modesty boundaries will inform a lot of the church's rules. And it's... The women in the church are told to emulate the pastor's wife as much as possible. So if she always wears hose and closed-toed shoes, even on Wednesday nights all of the women in the church who really care about the rules are also going to wear hose and closed-toed shoes on Wednesday night. But if the pastor tells his wife that she has permission to not wear any hose and wear sandals to church on Wednesday night only, then she can start not wearing hose and only wearing, and wearing sandals to church on Wednesday nights only and then the other women in the church will see that and they can go to their husbands and see if their husbands will give them permission to not wear hose and wear sandals on Wednesday night only.
3: So is this similar to how when you were when we were talking about I think the, the first family of fundamentalism and um your experience at Hile Anderson College as well. Is this like how you were taught in your Christian womanhood class to dress in a style that is similar to Cindy Hyle Scop, yes. or um, excuse me, what's her name now? Collins. It Collins.
4: Yes, uh, no, because because she was the the wife of the biggest pastor in our group, so she was the one who we were supposed to copy. And this is another form of pressure on a pastor's wife because okay, let's say her husband says that she does not have to wear hose on Wednesday night and she can wear sandals, but then some other women in the church see that. And they take it too far and they stop wearing hose on Sunday also and wear open toed shoes on Sunday also. And now it's her fault because she set the precedent by doing the same thing on Wednesday night. So now she's got to go back to wearing hose and closed toed shoes on Wednesday night too, because otherwise her husband has slipping standards and he's going liberal.
3: So if you were a woman in the IFB, You could, so your mother was a pastor's wife. They could have somebody like your mother, and 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 then maybe they'd catch a break on a lot of this more like ticky tacky stuff. Mm -hmm. Or you could have a pastor's wife be somebody who is more along the lines of like Laurie Alexander, and then you would just basically be.
4: Yeah. So if it's somebody like my mom. She was not stepping in on modesty stuff. Like, she wasn't policing members, church members, on modesty stuff unless it was, like, wardrobe malfunction level. Like, if someone had a dress that was modest, but it had a slit that was too high, and when you when that person stood on the platform, you could see up the skirt, my mom would say something before that person was supposed to go up to sing and then meet her in the back of the church with, like, a crap ton of safety pins and and or spare skirt and like so fix it so that they could go on stage and not be it was more about like i don't want you to be embarrassed because Hmm. you like you would go potentially go up on stage and your slit would be too high and your skirt would be too short
3: to me listening that seems kind of strict but i also understand that like i'm like regular person yeah and this (laughs) is like as far as the ifb goes this is really lenient
4: Yeah, because if that same person was sitting in the audience and not supposed to be on stage that particular day, she wouldn't really have said anything to them. And in a lot of IFB churches, the pastor's wife or another wife on staff would come by and give you a really backhanded kind of sneaky uh, series of insults (laughs) phrased in a very nice way.
3: Like what? Like... (sighs) Are we going to trigger some people with these? Yeah,
4: we're going to trigger people if I <laughs> do that. And also, I'm not as good as, at it as um, some people on TikTok do, <laughs> do better than me. It's like, um, oh, that's such a beautiful necklace. Did your husband just get you that for your anniversary? Oh, yes, he did. Thank you so much. Well, it it really is beautiful. But don't you think that it draws too much attention to your God-given natural beauty?
3: interesting so is that like saying oh your top is too low that's saying yeah
4: your top is too low
3: interesting okay wow that's Um, so
4: fake
3: that's yeah i know and it's the sort of thing where like if i wasn't raised in that culture i would be like what the are you talking about that's so
4: yeah
3: (laughs) huh wow that's really interesting man
4: you could have that or you could have somebody just straight up tell you, like, that's too low. Don't wear that to church again. Um, or you could have somebody like Yeah. Or you could have somebody like my mom who is really not going to say anything unless it's, like, highly egregious or you're going on stage. So, yeah, if your pastor's wife is really a stickler or she just does not know how to be nice to people... She's potentially going to make every bride come through dress check and every formal for church events come through dress check and every female singer on stage get dress checked and set really draconian standards even by the IFB norms. And if she sees something that she doesn't like, she's got the power to be really nasty about it.
3: The IFB, the, I, I guess what I'm thinking about here is the IFB is an environment where women have such little power that if you're somebody who maybe isn't the best at having authority And if you get a little bit of power over somebody, you're just going to go hog wild and feel like it's your job to keep people in line.
4: Yeah. So again, Mm. think Jill Rodriguez. She is so power hungry and so frustrated that she doesn't have power that it seems to us outside observers that she's got her children completely emotionally dependent on her and very enmeshed. And she wants to counsel other women over social media. And she threw a funeral for her live sister's paralyzed legs just to get a chance to stand behind a pulpit and feel the rush. So if she were a big name pastor's wife, I could see her doing a lot of that sort of thing to assert that small amount of power.
3: It's kind of like being a mall cop. <laughs> like, honestly, like it, it's like being a mall cop. I've, I've literally heard this phenomenon called mall cop syndrome.
4: Yeah. So another, I want to move to a different expectation of an IFB pastor's wife. Another typical expectation would be to be heavily involved in the music program, if at all possible. So thinking back to the Dating with a Porpoise episode, remember the guy who had a three-page wish list of all of the things that he was looking for in a wife? Two of the things I remember he wanted were someone who is a proficient piano player and someone who was able to sing solos in church.
3: Yeah. So the episode where we discussed that was, I think called it, it, this episode doesn't have a number on it because it was back when we were doing homework episodes and this was a reverse homework episode, but the episode is called dating with a purpose, a dating manual written by a convicted pedophile. And it came out on May 27th,
4: 2021. And, uh, (laughs) It's so wild that that's a real thing.
3: I know, like that's sorry. Uh, it just
4: hit me, like, oh yeah, he's like a real person.
3: <laughs> I, um, but yeah, I, I do remember what you were talking about, where the guy was like, "I want my wife to be beautiful, and she has to do this, and she has to do that, and she has to do the other things, and she, has she to do can't wear bright
4: colored hosiery." that was one of his things and she's got a way he had a weight requirement that he wanted and like clearly did not know what people weigh in their bodies and like the range of weights that can look drastically different depending on a person's height nah, anyway anyway
3: what if she's like five foot eight like you're saying i want my wife to be like a hundred pounds and she's like five foot eight that's not gonna <laughs> happen but it's not like
4: yeah well like clearly no, like, <laughs> I, I don't want to say like the number <laughs> the that hell. he had because i feel like that's gonna trigger some people potentially but um the-
3: this is a great time to announce that we have uh, in a couple of weeks coming out our uh, deep dive into the cult-like tendencies of the weight loss industry.
4: Yeah, we're <laughs> definitely going to dig into that one. So he he wanted his wife to weigh under a certain number, and the number that he chose was made it very evident that he had no idea what people weigh in the world. Um, so but the things that he the things that he wanted that I was referencing was he wanted a wife who could play piano and sing solos. It's not a must in the IFB for the pastor's wife to be the main church piano player. It is very common. It's a bit unusual to have a pastor's wife who doesn't play an instrument at all. Although to be fair, it's really uncommon for a Fundy girl not to take piano lessons. If you married a Fundy girl, it's very likely that she can at least play chords for hymns. They're just brought up for it. It's a very Regency attitude. Like this is just part of what accomplished young women must be able to do. It's also traditional mm. for the pastor's wife to sing in the choir, even if she's not a very good singer. And the reason for this is maybe interesting. I find it very interesting. So we'll see if our audience does too.
3: Please go into that. I mean, like that's this is fascinating.
4: So in the IFB liturgy, the choir traditionally stays seated behind the pastor while he gives his sermon. You can see this in a lot of sermon tapes um, if you follow Bad Preacher Clips on Twitter or whatever. This gives the pastor an appearance of power. It's the same reason that IFB pastors tend to preach with as many assistant pastors as possible sitting behind them which is entertaining as a kid because you can watch to see who's falling asleep.
3: Is that why that is?
4: That's why I think <laughs> it is. Like, why else would it be?
3: I don't know. Cause I keep watching. What's like the, every time the I utility? watch one. Yeah. Every yeah. time I watch like a, for, like a Jack Scott clip from first Baptist church, I'm like, who the f- are all these guys just chilling there? Like that's
4: what would possibly yeah. be the utility of having an additional two to 12 men sitting on the platform behind the guy who's speaking, if not to give him an appearance of power and respect and support.
3: I guess, I don't know. I mean, why else just, would
4: they be hmm. up there? I can't think of another reason. No. And.
3: To, uh, maybe, maybe to check your phone to see if there's pictures of, uh, that, that you exchanged with, uh,
4: yeah. <laughs> victim. Uh, yeah. With it's a v- you're uh, looking for there. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, um, the IFB is the only denomination that I've ever attended or visited that does quite like that. In more high church services, it's not uncommon at all to have a deacon or to sitting on uh, up at the altar while the pastor is giving or the priest is giving a homily. But that's more. There's a utility to that because they are going to do Eucharist, and you need multiple pairs of hands to make that happen.
3: Right, and like when I've gone to synagogue before, you'll have the rabbi get up there, and then the there'll be like a cantor, and yeah. the cantor will be up there to to also do like chanting in Hebrew as well.
4: That's a utility. There is a reason for the cantor to be up there as well. And I remember when we did high holiday services, um, the people who were not speaking, they didn't sit directly behind the person who was speaking. They sat kind of off to the side.
3: And then they'd come up to do when it was their time to do a thing.
4: hmm So in high church, yeah, having people up at the altar isn't unusual, but there's a very clear reason why they would be there, especially to be additional servers or additional sets of hands during a more high church Eucharist type thing uh and in low church in other low church denominations that i've visited or attended there's the people don't sit directly behind the pastor while he's speaking
3: but this is very much like an ifb thing
4: this is very much an ifb thing and it's 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 power and respect it's these oh these 12 other men that i respect and that i give authority to in my life are sitting behind this one man who is preaching so they support what he says and this is why like the polished shaft clip the polished shaft clip is so devastating because you're seeing these men who have given support to Jack Scop over years and years sitting behind him and you see like the devastation on their faces and you can some of them you can see it going through their heads like do I get up and stop this? Do I say something? What do I do? And of course yeah none of them chose to which I do Hold against them.
3: Pure cowardice.
4: Mm -hmm. Um, the one I, the one I give a pass to, and and just breaks my heart is Todd Weber, who is Jack Scop's son-in-law. That's that's just tough.
3: Yeah, that would be weird to see your father-in-law do that. That's that. Yeah,
4: and to be like a much younger guy who is under his authority in multiple different ways. So like, he's your boss. He's your father-in-law, and that must have been that must have been awful. Anyway, anyway, the pastor has, while he's speaking, the choir and the assistant pastors behind him. And in the IFB, traditionally, they put the pastor's wife near the center of the choir so that she's very visible right behind her husband while he's preaching. And it's a visible demonstration of, well, his wife agrees with him and she likes what he's saying, so I should listen to him. And this is this is like where we get the drama at First Baptist mm. Church of Hammond in the 80s and 90s because Beverly Hiles was placed right in one of those prime places in the choir so that she would be visible on the cameras when they recorded his sermons. She would be very visible to the audience. She was on the front row of the choir, right in the middle. But Jenny Nischik was placed directly across the aisle, also in the front row of the choir in the middle and actually a few feet closer to Jack Hiles.
3: So they're just like putting them both in there. I mean, Mm -hmm. that is such as like a show of force just saying, yeah, we can do this.
4: I don't know. I just think that is such a dirty detail of this entire scandal.
3: Especially for Beverly just to have to- and be there and yeah and like not only like,
4: does she have to show up not only does she have to sit behind this man and put on a pretty face and act like she agrees with everything that he's saying and be like visibly loyal in support of him but she's also got to do it while the other woman sits like five feet away from her 10 feet away from her
3: you could just i mean just dissociate and just like
2: yeah
3: brain out or like astral project yourself into a different universe now you're you. describing
4: how I survived all those IFP church <laughs> services. Uh,
3: ugh. So, I know you like to do Sadie's metaphor corner. Yes. Can I make a metaphor of my own?
4: Oh, absolutely. That would be great.
3: Can I pull my beanbag chair into your metaphor corner?
4: Yes, you are welcome in my <laughs> metaphor corner. <laughs>
3: okay. Um. I feel like the i almost feel like these these pressures to do and act in a certain way it's it's very dehumanizing it's very objectifying because it reduces a person down to a very utilitarian level it's almost like the and and this going back to the jack scop uh uh list of qualities for a wife anecdote that he told in that book it's almost like picking a wife is the same as picking a car Yeah, I mean, you've shopped for a car before. You're going to say something like, I want something that has a hatchback so that it's easy to load in cargo. I want a car that has at least four seats. I want a car that has all-wheel drive for the winter. I want a car that has 250 miles of electric range. I want a car that has Apple CarPlay or Android Auto and that it won't be too expensive to repair and it's nice looking and it comes in my favorite color. Mm -hmm. It's like that, except that it's like your wife. It's
4: Exactly and it goes two ways because not only is the husband selecting a wife based on these qualifications the church is selecting a pastor based in part on these qualifications like we as a church want a pastor who does all of these things and they've got this long list of specifications and what they're looking for for the man that they are going to hire and pay money to do these things But for the woman that they are not going to hire, they're going to hire her husband and pay him money. They want her to also fulfill all of these expectations for no money. But we as a church want a pastor's wife who is beautiful, stays at a certain weight, dresses well, has children, but not too many. Whatever that means to that particular congregation, she can do public speaking, can play piano, can sing, can teach in our Christian school or lead our homeschool collective or at least homeschool her own kids can organize and run the church nursery schedule, will put on great ladies' events at least one or two times a year, will run ladies' soul winning, and then all of this will not be too bossy or too pushy or too assertive, but will always comport herself with a very restrained way of being and way of speaking to people.
3: Man, that poem that Beverly Hiles put in her book is... I mean, like it it really is hitting.
4: That's why I, I had to include that because... She was very gently poking fun at the idea by including that poem in her book. She went on to explain, and in a very gentle way, that of course, this is not realistic, but that is the expectation.
3: But also, they're saying, you know, like, if you have a certain weight, you know, you're not qualified for this job, and it's not even like... You know, this job is like, oh, you're a model. You have to be able to model clothes in XYZ size and you have Mm -hmm. to be able to fit into the or like you have to be an actor. So you have to weigh this much for this specific role. You're Mm -hmm. just like, man.
4: For no reason except for, I don't know, general like fat phobia misogyny.
3: Aesthetics. Yeah.
4: (sighs) And pastors themselves are dehumanized in the same way. I don't. I don't want to discount that. Although pastors are put on pedestals and they are adored and venerated and served and coddled. All of the adoration and veneration is done in a way that strips them of their humanity. So pastors have this weird double-sided coin of things and pastors' wives have the same concept, but worse.
3: And I'm sure you saw, like you were a, a pastor's kid. And you've spoken before about the pressure you felt to behave a certain way. I can't imagine that your mother would have had it any easier.
4: Yeah. Uh. It's it's become a catchphrase for me, but this kind of pressure hurts everyone. It hurts men. It hurts women and non-binary people and children and teenagers. It hurts all of the people. It just so happens, like many things like many types of injustice in the world, it hurts women and queer people more than it hurts men and it hurts women and queer people of color the worst. Because those are the people with the least power in the world. And especially in this particular group. So I don't ever want to to just I don't want to play into the gender binary by saying like, oh, this world is wonderful for men and terrible for women, because that's reductive. And, and the truth of it is, it hurts everyone. It just hurts people. The less power you have in the system, the more it hurts you. So we've talked about the pressures and expectations at home and at church. There's a lot more that we haven't even covered, unfortunately. So let's go take up the offering. When we come back, we'll jump right back into these expectations for an IFB pastor's wife.
3: Sounds good. Let's do it.
1: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
4: that group is called eden exodus tell a friend tell a family member tell your worst enemy the leaving eden podcast is a fully independent podcast and we really appreciate your support now back to the show
3: we are back from our break uh, so in the first part of the episode we've talked about the expectations that are on a fundy uh, pastor's wife in the home we've talked about the expectations that are in um the church uh what are we going to talk about now
4: more church expectations. God. So we've, we've it never about, ends. Yeah, like the church programs that she's expected to lead, and jobs that she's expected to do at the church. We've talked about, but there are other things that come along with being a pastor, and because the pastor has to do it, his wife also has to do it. So we're going to talk about some of those things. Just to recap what we've done so far, because reading off this list, I feel like really hammers it in. And makes you aware of of all of it. So she's supposed to be a great housekeeper, a chef, do one hundred percent of the child care, take care of her husband's needs, of course, be sexually available. Let's say your husband makes a bad decision at the church because you let him go seventy five point two hours without sex. Like whose fault is that? <laughs> really, that he made a bad decision. It's your fault. Uh, so she's got to take responsibility for her children's education run all of the ladies programs at the church the mother daughter banquet the potlucks all other women coded volunteer stuff like nursery she's got to teach a sunday school class and be in the choir and be in other church music if at all possible and be the modesty police and be an example for everyone else and do all of that while being skinny pretty and fashionable on a incredibly strict budget does that sound like a, a reasonable expectation for a person
3: yes absolutely and if you can't do that then you're a failure
4: Ugh, that's
3: <laughs> <laughs> and God isn't blessing you. Okay, uh, do you now
4: understand why I sometimes text you? Like I feel like I'm failing as a wife and a mother. Yes. Like, do you understand no. like why sometimes I text you that though?
3: Yes, and that's
4: f- <laughs> up because this like, is like the standard that I was taught to hold myself to hold myself to.
3: Yeah, and that's just so unrealistic. But that's that's so many expectations.
4: So yeah. So like now, if I make my husband a frozen pizza for dinner instead of making something from scratch. I feel like a terrible person. Yeah, <laughs> oh, here we go, laughing through the pain.
3: <laughs> we that's what we do here. I'm so I'm wondering. Because
4: yeah, because this is what yeah. I was taught I was supposed to be. Go ahead.
3: So, uh in our Hillsong episode, uh we discussed how women in uh, uh like the the Pentecostal in the, the charismatic environment Uh, the specifically more Hillsong vibe can sometimes be co-pastors. And I use big air quotes for this, but they will be co-pastors for their husband. Is that basically the same thing as being the pastor's wife, but with a different title? Yes. Okay.
4: So that's the next thing I want to talk about because this is going to be a huge surprise to you. It turns out that pastor's wives in the IFB have a lot of the same co-pastoring responsibilities that a Hillsong pastor's wife slash co-pastor would have without even the thin facade of power or credit given by those co-pastor title.
3: Yeah. So that what they're, because if somebody's a co-pastor, then that's also another employee that's on your books. Right, they're legally like employed by the church, but if it's the pastor, the pastor's employed, and then the wife is not. I do not
4: know how salary works for churches that have co pastors that are husbands and wives. I imagine that they might still pay both the husband and the wife in one paycheck, but they're still. But I would assume Hmm. that they get paid more than an IFB pastor does, and an IFB pastor's wife takes on nothing. Like takes no paycheck. So there is <clears throat> there is at least a like I said a facade of respect and power and credit that's given by that co-pastor title even though the woman who holds it may get very little power. So in the IFB, the pastor's wife is expected to take on responsibility when it comes to the spiritual well-being of women in the church which is a, is a responsibility that I would put in the realm of co-pastoring responsibilities. The pastor's wife is supposed to be the most spiritual woman in the church. Just like the pastor is assumed to have a walk with God and spend time in prayer and Bible reading, so is the pastor's wife. This may help explain why someone who is intending to be a pastor's wife might find it important to go to Bible college because that gives her a credential for this unofficial title as the most spiritual woman in the church, the one who has the best walk with God. If she has been to Bible college, she's done all of those years of mandatory Bible courses. She's had the mandatory devotions, the mandatory reporting of her soul winning numbers, and she has had the opportunity to show off her wonderful IFB behavior to a number of young men who might want to become pastors and then choose her for their wife. So this is why your reputation and your soul-winning numbers at Hiles Anderson would matter so much. Because if an AFAB person wants to get anywhere in the IFB and not live in obscurity forever— They've got to marry one of these guys who are big IFB up-in-comers.
3: Or they're going to end up like J-Rod. Or
4: they're going to end up like J-Rod. Nobody wants to be J-Rod. So you've got to marry a guy who is going to have a big church one day because he's just that charismatic. Or you've got to marry a guy who's going to inherit his dad's large ministry one day. Or the guy who's going to write books and make money from that. Um, the guy who's going to have a big ministry that will pull you above the poverty line and keep you in nice shoes and nice purses for the rest of your life. The guy whose last name is going to put you on the platform of the bigger ladies conferences uh, and allow you to write books about marriage that will make you money, which, of course, will go to him. But then he'll give some of it back to you for shoes and pur- purses because that's what all women want. And you... Like, if you ever want to be that lady speaker who is looking down your nose at other women while you tell them to submit to their husbands and put their toothbrush on their toothpaste on their toothbrush for them, you got to marry one of those guys. And in order to marry one of those guys, you've got to be conventionally attractive. You've got to dress a certain way. You have to have a good personality. You have to have musical ability. You've got to put up respectable soul winning numbers. You got to bust your ass on the bus route. You have to check all of his boxes. On that three page wish list. That he's got tucked away somewhere.
3: Yeah okay. And now I'm getting why Jack Scott Was saying if you want to attract. This kind of woman you have to be. Mm-hmm. The like. Th- you have to be that guy. But also I'm reminded of what I was talking about. In the Manosphere episode. Where these relationships are just so transactional. Mm-hmm. That you give. Having big name. Uh, a father. You give being uh on fire for god you give being very charismatic preacher and you get in return attractive woman who does xyz thing it's mm-hmm. so transactional and that's like
4: every everybody wants to be on the top level of this little ecosystem and everybody's fighting everybody else to try to get there so maybe this perceived spirituality of the pastor's wife though also shed some light on why the pastor's wife is always supposed to be the keynote speaker for any address to an audience of all the women in the church, like the mother-daughter banquet or a ladies' conference. And this ties right back into J-Rod, because didn't she throw a mother-daughter event like sometime in the last few years, maybe right before Nuri got married? And then when she did Nuri's bridal shower, it was a huge event, and she gave a devotional at that. And she's pretty much single-handedly thrown a couple of different ladies' conferences over the past, like, three years since I became aware of her. Like, she is putting herself in the position of a pastor's wife, even though she's not actually married to a pastor.
3: And honestly, like, everything terrible about her aside, I kind of respect it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, like, yeah. I, like break the mold, Jill. Follow your heart. I believe in
4: you. I think this is why Jen would call her iconic, because... If she would just stop being such a terrible person outside of this part of her life, she would actually be kind of neat. Unfortunately, she is really, really committed to being a terrible person.
3: So I don't know. Also, if I'm crazy for thinking this, you know, the brand of feminism, um, and, and this is going back to all of the stuff you were saying about pastor's wives, not really necessarily about J-Rod anymore. Um, you know, the brand of feminism that's like the... I'm a woman and I can do anything I put my mind to brand of feminism. You know that one? Yeah,
4: like the, I can do anything a man can do. I can do anything a man can do and I can do it wearing heels kind of thing.
3: Yeah, that kind of, yeah.
4: Okay. Yeah, and I definitely support that brand of feminism. It's not the it's not the way of expressing feminist ideas that resonates best with me and my own personality. But if that's you, you go, girl, like... Gaslight, gatekeep, girl boss, all that. Don't be toxic, and I'm so here for it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, like the way that you're describing, like the expectations of the pastor's wife. It's like it almost feels like it's reverse Uno girl boss anti feminism.
4: Yeah, I don't hate that because this system of the IFB pastor's wife and a lot of different segments of misogyny in general go a lot deeper than oh, women are dumb and they can't do anything. Like, it's way deeper than that in the IFB and also in some forms of secular misogyny, right?
3: Yeah, and you'd be crazy if you're IFB and you're just like, women can't do anything. No, your whole thing is women can do these very specific things that are very useful, but as human beings, we're not, you know, very low value. And it's not just because, like, you're a human being and you're capable of doing great things either. It's very much like you're going to do all of these things because you're literally created to do them and you don't have a choice.
4: Yes, it's you are capable of doing all of these things because of Jesus. Or you are capable of, look at all of these things that you can do that a man is not capable of doing. And you are special to God and God made you to do all of these things and you are able to get it done as long as you pray enough for something. It's more mm. like treating women treating women like investments or like vehicles i know you brought up the the car analogy earlier i think the only better one would be farm animals and unfortunately that really Mm. is in my opinion the best way to describe how the ifb treats women uh, because they are expected to perform so now we're going to do sadie's metaphor corner part two Go for it. Grab your beanbag. So, if you're a farmer and you have a horse who is trained to pull a plow in the fields, you feed it, you water it, you treat it when it's sick, you put it in a stable, and in return, you expect a certain level of performance from that horse. You expect it to pull the plow when you tell it to and follow directions. You expect it not to balk if something scary happens. You expect it not to kick you in the head when you go to feed it. That horse is a valuable asset to your farm. It costs you money to purchase it, and it costs you money to maintain its life. But you might have a really strong, loving affinity for that horse and and truly care for it emotionally. In fact, you might genuinely love that horse and have a bond with it that's more like a pet than a working animal or that's somewhere in between those two, a bond that goes beyond its performance. You might even feel that you get emotional support from that horse and you give emotional support to that horse But in the end, it's an asset, it's a utility, it's on your balance sheet. It's not disposable, in the most literal sense, because if this horse gets sick, you're going to treat it, because treating a sickness is cheaper than letting it die and buying and training a new horse. And possibly, if it's sick, you're going to treat it also because you do love this horse, you have a bond, you do care. And when the horse is too old to pull a plow, you might even care enough to not dispose of it. You're likely going to keep that horse around and let it retire on your farm and live a nice life and go to see it and visit it. I love animals so much.
3: (laughs) But it's still a labor animal.
4: Exactly. Hmm. And if that horse kicks you one too many times or if it kicks your kid or if it gets an incurable disease, you're going to put it down. No matter how much, I'm not saying that this hypothetical farmer doesn't truly love their horse. You can love that animal so much, but it will never be a human person to you, not in the same way that you are a human person.
3: I'm sad about this metaphor because I can't imagine why somebody would be mean to a horse.
4: Yeah, but even if you were never, ever mean to that horse and you were kind to it its entire life and were never mean to it and just had it do its job and then were totally sweet to the horse, that's an appropriate way to treat a horse, but that is not an appropriate way to treat a person because there is still ownership and. Inherent superiority of a human over an animal. Can you imagine growing up seeing yourself as that horse?
3: Yeah. Mm. Because that's Mm.
4: what it is to grow up assigned female as a fundamentalist. You end up spending the next decades working on trying to figure out how to see yourself as a full and complete human being. Because you spent the first 20 years of your life hoping that you get a really good owner who will actually love you for more than your performance and will take care of you when you're old and will feed you and put your horseshoes on you and not make you pull a plow that's too heavy for you to carry. And then you come to the realization that you are a person and you actually, what you want is not an owner. What you want is a human companion. And how do you? search that out when you have never seen yourself as human. Sorry, I did not mean to Mm
2: -hmm.
4: necessarily go so deep in this episode, but dehumanization and objectification become foundational to your innermost thoughts and self-image and understanding of yourself as a person outside of your ability to perform these gender roles. And it's tough. It's tough.
3: I can only really imagine that. Cause I've never been through that, but that's you put that so well. I mean, Sa- Sadie's metaphor corner is continues to be among the best.
4: Well, thank you. Of this
3: show. Yeah. Oh man. Like it's, that's, it's,
4: that's, that's gotta be tough to hear. And I know yeah. it was tough to experience, but this is like the more I've thought about this and kind of dealt with this in my own life, the more I've come to the conclusion that farm animals are, is really the best metaphor for this. So, that was really deep. I want to get back on track because, believe it or not, we're not done with the responsibilities of a pastor's wife. (laughs) This is starting to get, like, feel ridiculous, and I understand that it is. (laughs) So, the presumption of being the most spiritual woman in the church comes with a lot of pressure in and of itself. Because, as you can imagine, you've got to perform spirituality. And you're not allowed to speak in church. You're not allowed to pray or prophesy. You're not allowed (laughs) to teach men. So how you have to perform spirituality is all of these silent ways in which you've got to behave in a very perfectly coded manner. You never fall asleep in church. You respond appropriately but reservedly to invitation time. You've got to be able to quote lots of scripture, be a really good soul winner, talk about how much Bible you read this week, how much you prayed this week, But not only does it come with the performance of spirituality, it also comes with more added responsibilities. So another way that the pastor's wife is expected to perform spirituality is teaching a Sunday school class. It would be really unusual for her not to do so, with a couple caveats. If her husband teaches an adult Sunday school class, it goes back to the umbrella of authority thing. So if the pastor husband teaches an adult Sunday school class, she has the choice between attending his class or teaching her own. And those are her only two choices. It would be weird for her to sit under another woman's authority because she's supposed to be the most spiritual woman in the church. So she can't go to any other adult Sunday school class. Traditionally, the pastor either teaches an adult class or maybe sometimes the oldest teen boys class, or the pastor just doesn't attend Sunday school and he just stays in his office and gets ready for the sermon because he's the highest authority and it would be weird for him to sit under somebody else's authority. The pastor's wife can't skip Sunday school because then she's setting a terrible example for everyone else in the church by not attending Sunday school.
3: So if he teaches Sunday school, she's got to be in the class, in the Sunday school class, listening to him.
4: So if he teaches, she can either be in his class or she can teach her own class. If he does not teach a class, she's got to teach her own class.
3: Either way, she's doing some Sunday school thing. Okay, that makes yeah. sense.
4: Um, Beverly Hiles taught eighteen girls Sunday school class, if I'm remembering correctly. So it's traditional for the pastor's wife to have like the oldest teen girls Sunday school class, but they do have the option of teaching a younger girls class or an adult ladies Sunday school class.
3: And so this is the sort of thing where if your church is big enough to have multiple Sunday school classes, then Mm -hmm. you would have both the pastor and the pastor's wife, or you could have it be the pastor's wife and then some other people. Right. Or you could
4: have the pastor teaching the adult couples Sunday school class. And in that case, it would be expected for his wife to attend. Obviously, I just got the the mental image of when Homer teaches the college course on marriage,
3: oh God, yes, and then he has to the nibbling on the elbow
4: yes uh, that's a very i f b pastor's wife experience
3: or <clears throat> what having having your uh your dirty laundry aired as like a illustration of what to do in marital conflicts
4: yes, pastors do that oh. shit all the time.
3: Man, so. And they do it to their mm. kids,
4: too. Like, if you're a pastor's kid and you get in trouble, you're going to be a sermon illustration like the next no. week. Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> um, which is how I ended up being a very, very quiet and reserved kid because if I didn't do anything, I could never end up as a sermon illustration.
3: <laughs> that is so much pressure, though. It that is, is so messed up.
4: It is. Mm. And like, What I'm trying really hard to illustrate is how the social norms and the gender roles and the what Beverly Hiles did all make a list of rules, but when you put them all together, the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts, and it coalesces into a rigid system where the pastor's wife is absolutely forced by social pressure into a very narrow expectation of behavior
3: yeah and i mean like what did i say in the i i said something like that in our manosphere episode that i think that kids deserve to be allowed to make their mistakes in private mm-hmm. i mean like if you're not a public like i get if you're a pastor and you do something wrong then people are going to be talking about you because you've got to be the um the 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 set yourself apart from other people at like the height of morality and you have to try to be like the most moral and and good person as possible but if you're not that and i guess it's it's the funny thing where like you come as a set but you don't if you're the wife then you don't get any of the benefits but you get all of the work that oh man that's so rough
4: right and you you only benefit if that church gets big enough to pay your husband really well and to give you nice gifts and to get you onto the speaker's platform at Lady Spectacular or the Pastor's Wife Sessions at Pastor School, you only benefit if you make it to the top of the entire thing.
3: Yeah, or if you're writing your own books or something. thats just Or, like, if you, yeah, if
4: you get famous for writing books or something like that.
3: That's too much, man.
4: So, I want to talk about maybe one or two additional responsibilities of the pastor's wife
3: more yeah there's
4: a, there's a couple more things that come <laughs> oh. up because of the perceived spirituality like you're supposed to be the most spiritual there are a couple more things that follow along that train so one of them is the ability to do counseling we have done a whole episode about pastoral counseling and what that looks like in the IFB A pastor's wife is expected to be available for all the women in the church to do counseling with. This is kind of where you get the Lori Alexanders of the world. A pastor's wife has to be available to take questions from all the women in the church, often pertaining to what do I do if my husband is cheating or drinking or abusing me or just otherwise being a And her answer always has to be some version of pray about it and be a better wife. 48 to 72 hours, you know? The pastor's wife also has to be available to do co-counseling sessions with her husband. This is where Jack Scott broke the rules because he felt like it and messed up his life and messed up a bunch of other people's lives in the process. If a woman in the church wants any counseling from the pastor at all, the pastor's wife is supposed to be present in the room. I've heard some more compassionate takes about if the woman really, really does not want to be overheard and really needs personalized one-on-one counseling from the pastor, that the pastor's wife should sit in the room and wear headphones, which is— That's
3: time-consuming.
4: Yeah. It's time-consuming, but also I appreciate that they care about a woman in the church who, like, actually needs real help. It's also common, but not universal, to have the pastor's wife— sit in on any marriage counseling sessions that the pastor does with couples in the church as well.
3: I can I mean I can only imagine how logistically challenging it has to be to plan out your entire day based on when you need to be in the room with your husband so he doesn't accidentally one-on-one with a woman. That's just logistically speaking that's just so much. And you've got all the other stuff to do, too. You've got to, like, you know, take care of all the kids, and you have to do all of the Like, you can teach Sunday school, and you've got to...
4: So, in my experience, this led to the pastor's kids just being latchkey kids a lot, which, for my family, was not so bad, because we lived 20 feet behind the church in a house trailer, house (laughs) provided by the church. So... We, you know, we we were left home alone at younger ages because if something went bad, we could just run over to the church and get our parents. My dad's external office door was right by our house, so it was thirty seconds to get to them.
3: And he wouldn't have left you alone if he thought that there was a possibility that something no. bad could have happened to you, anyway. So,
4: no, it was just um, like we we were hardly barely even in a different building only technically in a different building but obviously this can be a lot worse um the parentification can be a lot more severe children can really be left to their own devices which is how you get the stereotype that pastor's kids are even are either really 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 good or incredibly evil and terrible
3: david Isles.
4: yeah but just the pastor's kids seem to get the short end of the stick everywhere also, though, if the pastor gets called at 1.30 a.m. because somebody died or is currently dying and the family wants the pastor to come say a prayer and comfort the family, guess what? Oh, God. They also want his wife to come along to comfort the family because the pastor can't hug any of the women in the family. So if they want hugs, they got to bring the pastor's wife along.
3: Right, because you can't have physical contact. Right. with Man. <laughs>
4: This is you. The pastor's wife can be excused from this kind of responsibility if she has very small children. Uh, but unless that's the case, if the pastor's got to get up, dress in church clothes, and go off to some hospital at one thirty in the morning, so does his wife. Pastors' wives have to go with their husbands to death calls. That's what I'm trying to say.
3: And they have to like hug people. They have to. Yeah,
4: they have to. You are basically kind of doing like some kind of therapy. I
3: I think it's so weird that you've got to be like, they're like, you can't have physical contact because of purity culture, because of like the, the vision of impropriety. You can't have a physical contact with a woman. Like what is, is it like, yeah, my husband just died. Better not let the pastor hug me or he'll want to have sex with me. Like that's.
4: That is the teaching though. That's so
3: weird who is like say oh man there was a dead body in this room you want to like who That is.
4: yeah the teaching is that men are literally uncontrollable animals and anything can set them off at any time
3: and yet this man is you want this man to be your pastor even though he's an uncontrollable Mm -hmm. animal and would probably have sex with you in the room where your husband just died three minutes ago um
4: yeah and like Because you just Uh, believe, and it's not that you believe that about him personally, it's just that you just believe that about all men. Like, all men are like that, but they are God-ordained to be our leadership in every way way and every part of our life.
3: And I guess, like, say if you're the pastor's wife, like, what if if you're just, like, not a hugger? And I guess it's just expected that you're a Mm -hmm. hugger, and that you're, like, willing at a moment's notice to go and have an emotionally difficult interaction with somebody And really be willing to pour into them Mm -hmm. in their time of need. And I guess that comes with a job if you're a pastor. And I guess Mm -hmm. that comes with a job if you're a pastor's wife. But like, I mean, I'm a pretty outgoing person, but I would not be able to handle that.
4: Yeah, you just, Just, you don't have much of a (sighs) choice. If somebody has a terrible day, you show up and you're 24-7 on call for hospital visits for sick people and death visits and funerals and new babies. And somebody calls you on the phone in the middle of the night because they had a fight with their spouse and they can't deal with it. And just you're you're a, a therapist and a comforter and uh, everything just all at once.
3: And after you're done doing that, you can't even go home and, f- and chill and like smoke weed and like, mm-hmm. you know, drink wine in the bathtub. Right. Because you're IFB and you've got to A, you can't do any of those things. And B, you've got to like look after your kids and make sure that the house is cooked and cleaned and, and the kids yeah. are, are, and the ugh. only
4: comfort. And I think this is key. The only comfort that you are allowed to take is from the Bible, from Christian music, from sermons. So you have like this up experience and like, you know, I'm not even saying that, that the Bible or Christian music or sermons are bad. Coping mechanisms for when you've had a bad experience. I mean, hell, I have a bad day and I play hymns on the piano because it is like comforting to me.
3: And religion is one of the, I think, one one of the biggest arguments that people make for like, this is why religion is useful is like when I was in a time of need, religion, like my religious beliefs were there for me.
4: Yes. And that's not an invalid or a bad thing. I think the bad thing is that is the only place you're allowed to take comfort and the only outlet that you're supposed to have for negative feelings and that contributes to self-brainwashing. This even applies to pastors' children as well because if there are there were times when somebody in our church It wasn't a church member, and I can't remember who it was. It was a church member's sister's husband or something like that who died and left behind young kids. And we had to hang out with the kids. My siblings and I did.
3: Oh, that sucks. Because that's like
4: my parents were hanging out with the parents, and somebody needed to be there for the kids.
3: How do you like? How do you like hang out with a kid whose parent just died? Do you like? I, I, I
4: didn't know then, and I don't know now.
3: I mean, you can't just be like, "You got any bionicles?" Like, yeah. Yeah, man.
4: So, so this, uh, all of the members of the pastor's family are on call in this way, and it, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around how anybody could possibly manage all of this. And I think this is why, when I was attending ladies' conferences growing up, the consistent message that I got above all other messages from pastors' wives was that they always felt like they were failing at some part of what they were supposed to be doing. Well, of course they felt that way. They had way too many things that they were supposed to be doing. And these big-name pastors' wives would say things like, You've got to find some time to take care of yourself even a few minutes a day. Like in, in uh Beverly Hiles book, she talks about taking the time to properly go use the bathroom and don't feel like you have to rush through that. There's a reason she was that it was advice that needed to be given. Or the reason that she said, um, if everything else falls apart, your most important job is being your husband's wife. The the reason they are making that kind of statement is that there is no way that someone could ever keep this up and succeed at everything, and something is always going to be falling apart.
3: So, th- so this is why. Like, so when you were at HAC, you were not looking for a boy who wanted to be a pastor. You're looking for like somebody who wanted to be an assistant pastor. Or somebody who wanted to be a teacher.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even before Hiles Anderson as a teenager, I simply couldn't imagine willingly stepping into that kind of role. My mom was a wonderful pastor's wife. She is my hero. She is literally almost a perfect human being. She is the kindest and most gracious person I know. She is grace and patience incarnate. And she's intensely organized, which unfortunately is the only part of that long list of virtues that I inherited. But even she struggled to keep all those balls in the air all the time.
3: I mean, I I, I under, Like, I watched my dad come home from work every day, stressed the fuck out. And like that would radiate out of him. And I think from a young age, I decided that I never wanted to work that hard but like this this just seems like that's on a different level of stress that it's just like a, a, a orders of magnitude difference
4: yeah and it's for absolutely no pay there's not even a salary bump for it. the owner of this wife sorry the the, the pastor because <laughs> of all the work that his property i'm sorry all the work that his wife does
3: And of course, it's not acceptable for a woman to work outside the home anyway, even if she had enough time to do that.
4: Right. So it's not entirely unusual for a pastor's wife to take a job working at the church that her husband pastors once all of her kids are in school or older. So my mom was the church financial secretary for a while. Uh, She did a great job with that. She managed to make everything really transparent. So the books were open to anybody who was a member of the church so there wasn't a possibility of a uh, conflict of interest or anything that wasn't above board. She also worked for the school. She taught kindergarten at the school and then a different, a different times, She taught different grades for the school. And I think she got paid for those jobs. It was a ridiculously insultingly low amount, but I do think she got paid. I'm not hundred percent sure.
3: It's not like the church had a lot of money to be throwing around anyway. It's not like the Mike Warnke. Uh- huh and his wife each getting
4: 280000 was it? One yeah, plus the expense 80s?
3: accounts. And <laughs> right. Yeah.
4: Sometimes Rifter. the pastor's wife can work, though, like as the church secretary teaching in the Christian school, some other paid position at the church. That position would almost universally pay less than minimum wage, though, except for in the case of the absolute biggest churches in the IFB and also the check goes into a joint bank account because women shouldn't have their own bank accounts. So, it's not like they really get to keep any of the money anyway.
3: I mean, in the case of a small IFB church like yours, I like I kind of get it because you do like you do have to do more with less every year. But we keep hearing stories from places like Hillsong where people like especially women, but people are just expected to spend hours and hours and hours of their lives doing free labor for the church and not getting paid or getting paid uh insultingly small amounts of money like watching people's kids or like and scrubbing toilets at the conference or whatever for 20 hours a day like that Mm -hmm. um one student was made to.
4: so i let's hypothesize and say that the church some weirdly compassionate and progressive ifb church uh, because they do they do exist. The IFB is not a monolith. I try to speak to the average or the combination of all the different churches that I saw and was involved with. but there are there are very, very, very rare like maybe less than a hundred in the country IFB churches that are actually way more progressive um because it is they are independent and there is no denomination to report to. Those churches are just cut off from other IFB churches because they're not following the party line. But let's say that a pastor works for one of those churches and there is an additional salary or stipend of some sort for the pastor's wife. Even if that situation existed, there's still no pay for midnight death calls. There's still no pay for singing in the choir, which is actually a really time-heavy commitment, believe it or not. There's no pay for Playing piano in church, we're singing solos, there's no pay for teaching Sunday school or doing counseling sessions. And I fully get and validate that people like to volunteer for their church. Volunteering in general is an awesome thing to do, but this is not volunteering. This is just what you have to do when your husband is the pastor. I can see how that could potentially be ethical if a person went into it knowing and consenting to the duties that they'd be taking on. Because I know that that more egalitarian and less patriarchal or complementarian couples often see themselves as a package deal in the ministry. Like, uh, you know, I am married to you, and our collective job is to serve God in Christian ministry. But I, I think that people, I think that that situation is frustratingly rare. And In the vast majority of these cases, the church is not paying the husband anywhere near a decent salary. But all of these things, all of these time commitments and being on call and the counseling sessions and the death calls and all of it are expectations of the job that the pastor gets paid for. It is still problematic labor practice for the husband the pastor it is unfair and unethical because they do not pay enough but the church is contracting him to work and he is paid for the work that he agreed to do for the church regardless of the fact that he should be paid more and he should not be worked into the literal ground there is a an element of consent there for the husband the pastor in this situation that i don't see existing for the wife she is unpaid. She is expected to do these things for free. She's an afterthought and often unnoticed and unthanked. And she gets a few minutes every year on Mother's Day or the pastor's anniversary of coming to the church or at the end of the ladies' conference where everybody claps for her and the pastor talks, makes some joke about how his smoking hot wife is really the one who makes the whole ministry run. And then everybody laughs And then they give her a nice gift basket with some chocolate and a gift card to a mid-range local spa for her and her best friend. But she doesn't have a best friend because not only does she not have time, she's also not allowed to have close friendships with anyone in the church because that would be showing favoritism. And it's inappropriate for the pastor's wife to be emotionally intimate with anyone other than her husband. And I'm just honestly not ashamed that I looked at this at a young age, and knew that I wanted no part of it. It's it's all of this, all of these responsibilities and no real power. Like We've all heard the phrase, the husband is the head, but the wife is the neck that turns the head. And yes, IFB wives and pastor's wives have influence over their husbands. They are allo- allotted a small amount of power in this hierarchical competitive power structure but what they don't have i would argue is personhood and i think that anything less than full and complete personhood is simply not enough to offer someone okay i'm done for now
3: yeah oh, man oh that sounds so rough uh, Yeah, and I, I guess
4: if i could say uh, one more thing <clears throat> for all of the people who grew up socialized as girls in the IFB, for all of the people who grew up in my posi- in my position, whether they were pastors' children or not. We all saw these expectations of pastors' wives and staff's wives, and we saw the the drama around these things play out, even if you grew up just as a regular church member's kid. Chances are you saw a conflict of some kind over these expectations surrounding your pastor's wife or the wives of people on staff at the church. Um, A lot of people that I'm really close friends with now did not grow up as pastor's children, and they've all mentioned something related to the wife of someone who works for the church is not fulfilling what the church expects of her. And I think that it, it damages all of us because that is that is what we internalized is an acceptable way to behave towards women I don't know there's there's a lot to unpack here this episode has my brain gears spinning
3: yeah this i mean this sounds really really rough Ugh. yeah man uh do you do you want to wrap this one up i think it's time yeah Yeah.
4: (laughs) because i Um. could i could continue to just go on and on for a while but i think i've set it up for this for this episode
3: yeah, and, and your points were very insightful, and I'm just, man, and just just be raised with that expectation. That's
4: yeah. My big ah. takeaway is, is that it's um it's damaging to how people who are assigned female at birth see themselves growing up, and the the whole of these expectations is far deeper than the sum of its parts.
3: Yeah, and that's the that's why i think i i you know when we first started having these conversations and, and you were explaining to me about like deconstruction and all of the things that you know mentally you had to go through i just like and i had no f-ing clue because you literally had to learn to see how who that you were a person like you literally had to learn yeah. to visualize to like comprehend the fact that you're a person which is like
4: have you ever had wild. like a real light bulb moment about something
3: yeah a couple of times
4: like think about the biggest light bulb moments in your life and imagine if one of those was holy i might be a a person
3: i think the the biggest light bulb moment that we've been talking about recently was when mike warrenke realized that satan was in charge of satanism (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry man Uh, Uh, speaking of someone who does not see women as people yeah, no, literally, he's like um, kidnapping people and 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 using them for as like virgin sacrifices or something.
4: except and then, for he never even did that. He just he just fantasized about it like some kind of sick freak.
3: Yeah, who would who would come up with that idea and would be like, this is a thing that I definitely did. Not and, someone and, I
4: want to be in a room with.
3: Expect people to be like, I applaud you, Mike Warnke, for. Being so brave is to admit that you sex traffic a woman for, uh, the purposes of using her in a satanic ritual and, and, uh, uh, sexually abusing her. Um,
4: yeah. yeah. You know who would admit to that? Somebody who didn't do it. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was last week. What are we doing next week?
3: Next week. We're talking about famous fundies being woke on accident. <laughs> famous fundies oh, woke man. on accident here we go yeah we talked about this with jen jen is really the gift that keeps on giving to uh the fundy verse um
4: that is such a good way to describe jen
3: yeah the i i, I do the reverend that we do love her no but we, when we were on with jen we uh we had a conversation about uh, uh laurie alexander being woke by accident and uh having a accidentally pro-sex work uh take at one point and that got us to thinking what are some times when the fundies have been accidentally woke um like have horseshoe theoried around so much for their uh insanity that they've actually come on the other side and started (laughs) to sound like reasonable people uh and we have some fun examples that we've been able to dig up so stay tuned for that that'll be really fun
4: um, we have some fairly heavy content coming down the pipes before the end of May, so on our way into Pride Month content. So we thought it would be fun to do uh, something a little lighter next week.
3: Yeah, it's going to be a ton of fun. Also, make sure you get your questions in for our Q&A episode. Uh, the, de- the cutoff for that is coming pretty soon. Um, So in the next few days after this episode comes out, try to get your questions in for our Q&A episode, and we'll get those answered. And um, where do
4: people send those questions?
3: Send them to leaving at gmail.com. If you've ever wanted to ask a cult survivor, something or just a fundamentalism survivor, ask us something of you can ask something to me if you really want to, I don't know why you would want to, but you could, um, but I'm you gonna can get do a that
4: email and start writing in questions for you.
3: <laughs> yeah. That's what we're going to say. Uh, we're going to, um, you know what, maybe if nothing, ha- if, if, if uh, you know what, maybe I'll do. If we get uh, good enough questions, maybe I'll uh, read everybody the anonymous question that I wrote to Paul. Oh and Morgan, man! Uh, to that they never answered because maybe they saw that it was. Uh, Thing but we'll talk about that um, Yeah so if you like our show if you're a fan Of our show subscribe to our patreon For a very extended version Of today's episode in which Sadie talks about the time that she was Traumatized and she saw a dead body That story didn't make it onto The streaming cut but it's definitely on the patreon Cut so make sure that you uh, uh, Subscribe to the patreon That's
4: like My most traumatic story that has <laughs> Nothing to do with religion
3: Yeah uh, that's patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast you can join our Facebook group and our subreddit both of those are called Eden Exodus great places to have discussions of the show the Facebook group is the main place you can share memes you can share some some personal stories you can share fundy uh, stuff fundy snarkities and uh, just just talk about religion anything in general that you think is podcast related um, you can uh, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and a TikTok at Leaving Eden Podcast on Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod Sadie, your socials. Hit
4: you us. can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One.
3: And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You guys have a great day. Bye bye.